Well, hey, everybody, You're, you've joined me, Kevin Stevenson, on I Don't Care with, yeah, me, Kevin Stevenson, as always. Uh, my guest today, you're going to love him. He's a great guy, Jim Wetrich. Jim is the CEO of the Wetrich Group of Companies, and Jim's resume is is so long. I'm going to let him talk about it, but uh, Jim, welcome to I Don't Care. Kevin, it's an honor. It's a delight. It's a great privilege to be with you and your listeners. Uh, thank you so much for the opportunity. Thanks so much. Tell my tell my folks, you know, a little bit about your background because I can't do it justice. Kevin, I started out in hospital administration, got a MHA from Tulane, and uh, worked at Auctioner. Uh, the gentleman that I worked with there, David Pitts, left uh, as CEO to set up his own consulting firm, and uh, David hired me a couple years later. He and I spent about five years um, developing the University Hospital Consortium, which later became University Health System uh, Consortium, which Mm -hmm. later became part of Vizient, and spent a long, um, wonderful time working with 45 university hospital CEOs, pulling together Mm -hmm. initial programs, setting the strategic plan and strategic direction for UHC left the provider side of the business to go to uh, what my provider friends call the dark side, went to the supplier side, (laughs) had a wonderful, we've all done that, (laughs) (laughs) had a wonderful 11 year run at Abbott Laboratories. Um, Just it it completely changed my life. Um, Worked with people that were some of the best and brightest people. Uh, As you know, uh, in uh, Jim Collins' book, Good to Great, Abbott Mm -hmm. is featured a number of times for a number of different things they do. And left Abbott essentially and set up my consulting business and uh, have had that on and off since 2000. Spent eight years working for another medical device company, Mundlaka Healthcare, um, running the U.S. and Latin America for that company that has... Uh, two main product lines, wound care products that sells mm-hmm. into places like yours and places where you've worked and also uh, a, a very well-known um, U.S. Uh, product called Biogel Surgical Gloves. Sure. So um, sure. I uh, had the great privilege of running that business for eight years as well. So I uh, okay. left Monlika and bought an outplacement firm called Haney Lauterman. John Haney mm-hmm. and Bill Lauterman had been doing outplacement with hospital executives for over 25 years, and they were ready to retire, and I bought their firm. So today, Kevin, we do uh, executive and professional coaching, both on the provider side as well as the supplier okay. side. Um, and we do uh, outplacement. I work with a number of executives uh, in the outplacement area, mm-hmm. mostly outplace hospital executives. And we also help, my firm helps uh, medical device companies get their products into the U.S. hospital market. Okay. Yeah. Incredible. Well, you know, just to show you obviously what a small world healthcare is, uh, I know David Pitts from my days at Baton Rouge General. Oh, yes, of course. He was on the board. He was chairing the board yes, when I was at yes. the General many years yes. ago. Yes. And, uh, and, and, and right before I went to Baton Rouge, I was in uh, Kearney, Nebraska, Good Samaritan up there. Yeah. And but this was in, I think it was in 2000. Uh, we used to have a huge event every summer and we would bring in noted speakers. And we brought in, and, and you probably know the guy, 
Bill Dwyer. Of course, of course, of course. I know Bill very and, well. Very well. Yeah, and so so you know, we were we were always we always thought we were really cutting edge bringing all these great speakers in. <laughs> so Bill comes in and he's talking about this crazy thing called the Human Genome Project uh, and I remember sitting there going, what in the world is this? We're never going to so yeah, so small, so small world Kevin. So Bill and I worked in the same division for 4 years. Oh, that's incredible. And Bill was around the corner from me. We lived in the same neighborhood. And the guy uh, who I worked for for a brief period of time at Abbott um, left Abbott to become CEO of the Human Genome Project. That's incredible. That is just incredible. So, so really, 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 really yeah, small world. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, hey, Jim, again, you know, it's great to have you on. The reason that I wanted to have you on is because of the book that you've written, Stifled, Where Good Leaders Go Wrong. And, you know, I mean, I've been blessed in my 30-plus-year career to have worked with a lot of phenomenal leaders. But you know what? Everybody makes mistakes. And, and I think, you know, I've, I've started reading your book. And, boy, you've hit on a lot of the areas where we all fail. So tell me, tell me a little bit about how this book even got started. Yeah, I, um, I've, I've been working on writing a memoir. Um, and, and trust me, Kevin, my, my life is not memoir worthy, but I um, had a very dear friend growing up and um, we got to be really close in high school and I went off to college. He went off to a different college and uh, he died of leukemia when I was in my first semester of grad school at Tulane. And he changed my life. Um, his, his death, um, showed me how fragile life is. And he was an only child. Uh, his parents were educators in Claremont, California, where we were both born and raised. And, um, it just, uh, had a huge impact. So I've always wanted to write about Marcus and I have been. But in the meantime, during the pandemic, I had outlined, uh, previously, um, notes for stifled and I, said to myself, I've got to get one of these books yeah. done. So I really focused on that. And um, I've been very fortunate, much like you have, uh, of working for some amazing people. Everyone, save the first person I worked for, Kevin, who was a grocery store manager, even the following grocery store manager I worked for, every one of my bosses in my entire career has gone on to be a CEO or an officer in a public or private company. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just, I've worked for unbelievable people and learned so much, but I've also seen a lot of people make a lot of mistakes. And Mm -hmm. many of the books I think we read and turn to tell us how to be good leaders, but a lot of them don't talk about how we can learn from the mistakes we make and we've made and many of us have made. And by the way, Kevin, I'm 66 and a half years old and I'm still making mistakes. And I'll believe me, never too. stop making mistakes. So, me you know, too. Yeah, so. so it's just really capturing that and, and looking at what can we learn from those things. Yeah. Sure, absolutely. Yeah. Well, hey, if you'll indulge me, I'd like to dive in. You've written, there's 17 chapters that address various areas of mistakes. I'm going to jump around and, yeah, and let's great, just talk about great, those. So, great. So, so chapter one, and you know, this is no surprise to anybody in healthcare, 
healthcare leaders typically have pretty big egos, right? I mean, there's lots of egos. You know, there are a lot of rooms that can't fit more than two or three people because of the size yep. of their heads. Yep. But the chapter one, you focus, it's focus on failure. Yep. Let's talk about that. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that really struck me years ago when I did a little bit of work um, in the mountaineering space and also used to uh, hike and backpack and do a little bit of, of you know, climbing was the fact that year after year after year after year, climbers are still dying from some of the same mm -hmm. mistakes. Um, and, and I talk about that in the book. And it's amazing how we repeat the same mistakes over and over and over again. We see it in healthcare. We see it in many different mm -hmm. industries where we just don't stop and really think about what is it we've just been exposed to and how can we change, right? The key is change. How do we change our practices? Mm -hmm. I remember one time I, I heard Ed Veister speak. He was the first American to climb all 8,000 meter peaks around the world without supplemental mm -hmm. oxygen. And he said, look, the problem isn't getting up the mountain. Getting up the mountain generally is, is not the hard part. The hard part is when you're fatigued and not thinking straight and it's the end of the day and you're just want to get back down off that mountain. Yeah. That's when the mistakes happen. And that's when people lose their lives. They don't so much lose their lives going up the mountain as they do making mistakes when they're tired coming down the mountain. Yeah. 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 I, I certainly, I certainly can, can relate to that. You know, you, you see, yeah, I mean, what we do and what all of our teams do, it's difficult. And so, you know, uh, particularly during the pandemic, you saw a lot of people just you know, exhausted. And so trying to, you know, and it was it was right in the, it was the perfect storm. It was. People are tired. People are tired. And you're having to make decisions that you haven't had to make before. Yep. And so that's why, you know, a lot of those mistakes were made. But fortunately, you know, I th I think we did we did focus on learning from yeah, our failures yeah. and from our mistakes, yeah. and that was a that was a great thing. And you know, and coming out of that, I've talked to so many of my friends who said, you know, I don't know how we got through it, but we got through it better than than we went into it because we were able to to be more creative and we were willing to make those mistakes. Well, I, I think you're exactly right. And the thing that, that really uh, rejuvenated and refreshed me from the whole experience was how unbelievably adaptive, creative um, that so many people were and so many leaders were and so many companies were. And, and uh, I remember one time talking to a physician who's in the wound care space and uh, he called me one time and he just happened to say, I'm at Lowe's or Home Depot or whatever. And I'm like, why are you there? He's like, I'm buying painter suits, right? For my people yeah. in the hospital, I'm buying as many as I can. So how many companies all of a sudden pivoted Ford Motor Company and thousands and thousands mm -hmm. and thousands of companies to create masks or gowns or, you know, ventilators or whatever it was. And the thing that I love about that, Kevin, is, Look at how agile we were when there wasn't bureaucracy getting in our way, which stifles even today, post-pandemic, so many co corporations. Yeah, you're so right, boy. That's that's exactly right. Okay, let's get to, the, uh, to another chapter: clarity and transparency. You know, and that's something that 
you know, I, so many people feel like, you know, information is power. They don't want to, they don't want to share that. But, you know, I, I talked to Quint Studer a couple of weeks yep. ago and he said, you know, there, there's been such a change in, in the old order where it said people leave the company for their for their direct supervisor. And he said, that's not the case anymore. People are leaving companies for, for uh, because of senior leadership. Yep. And so much of that is around, you know, the fact that people don't have that level of trust yep. and they don't feel that their organization has a direction. So let's talk about, you know, the whole clarity and transparency. Piece I think I, I think that's great. And, and, and um, you know, we're dancing on this tightrope, right, of what should I share? What should I not share? What should I say? Okay. What shouldn't I say? And it's obviously a lot different for public companies. There's very sensitivities anytime anybody who's in an officer position stands up and says anything. But aside, aside from those complexities, I personally believe that people have a right to have access to information. I, 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 you know, I believe people should know what people are paid. I don't have a problem telling people what I make or what I've made or where sure. I've been. I mean, it's a statistic. And, and if I'm not happy with that, I've got two choices. Um, try to get more or go find a place who's willing to pay me more. Right. So exactly. I think um, we've done a lot and uh, kudos to Google um, for coming out with psychological safety and and mm -hmm. showing that being able to speak up being transparent being able to speak your mind uh won't necessarily cause you to get you know your head ripped off in a meeting and sent packing so i um i'm particularly interested in this area kevin in two regards one's performance review performance management um and and one is succession planning Right. Um, there's a book that I quote in my book that a Stanford professor wrote uh, a previous study that showed that 65 percent of companies routinely lie to their employees about their promotability because they don't want to have turnover. Mm -hmm. Now, this is like a 10 or 15 year old study. But sure. look, if you don't have a future and we can't develop you, we can't train you, we don't believe you're a keeper. I'd just like someone to tell me that I'm a mature adult and I can make a decision either to grind it out or to go find my happiness elsewhere, as the folks at, at Disney like to say. So. No, you're, you're so right about that because uh, I think that, you know, and in, in we're coming up on performance review season here. Uh, yeah, and, and we have a great culture at my hospital, and I've talked about that numerous yep. times on the podcast. But but I think, you know, being honest with somebody, you know, for the good or the bad is I mean, that shows how much you care about them, because, you know, if you're trying to if you're if you're lying to them or trying to keep something from them, you're not helping them grow and you're not and, and you're not showing them, hey, you know, I need you to do to do some things differently to, to be more effective. You know, so that's why whenever I have a, a performance uh, uh, appraisal with one of my folks. I lay things out of line. Fortunately, I've got great people that work for me. And so, you know, little tweaks here and there. I don't have any major things. But but I you know, I want them to know how much I care about them. And I care about them enough to be totally honest with them. Yeah, I, I love the John Maxwell line, you know, and, and it may not even have been his. Somebody else may have said it. But um, I first heard it from John Maxwell. People don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And it, it's just so true. And 
And it goes back to checking your ego at the door. You talked about that a little earlier on. And, um, you know, I tell people, I don't think I put it in the book, Kevin, but I tell people one of the greatest things my mom did was tell me, look, Jim, uh, you're not special. She said, don't get me wrong. I love you. You're my child. You are my child and I love you, but we're all the same. We're all the same and you're not better. You're not smarter. You're not whatever. And, and that really grounded me. And I think it's really important to understand that how we live today, you and I or others is Mm -hmm. because we've been very fortunate perhaps in our lives or unfortunate in our lives, but it's not because we're better or worse than anybody else. Um, So much is because when I look at people who've been very successful, A, they've been mentored and B, most Mm -hmm. of them, if they're brutally honest, and many of them are, will tell you, Jim, I was in the right place at the right time. I, I I just was. Yeah. Absolutely. I I can, I can uh, attest to that many times in my career. Okay, here's another another chapter that that speaks close close to my heart because I'm a strategy guy. I'm the growth guy. Growth mindset versus a fixed mindset. Yeah, I I don't remember exactly when I became familiar with the work of Carol Dweck um, or who turned me on to to her work, but I've been a huge fan for a very long period of time. And as I mentioned to you, I do a lot of executive and professional coaching, and it's Mm -hmm. one of my go-to books that I I, I suggest to my clients. And it is, Kevin, as you know, it is a mindset, right? I either think that I can grow, I can develop, I can learn, I can get better, or no, I was born the way I was born. That's the way it is. And I can't yeah. really do too much about that. And, you know, she's spent an entire career. I think she's still working at Stanford, studying over and over and over again the the benefit of having a growth mindset versus a fixed mindset. And I use some of the questions that she put in her book and her book. She's written several now. And, and when hiring people to sort of get a sense for, you know, what is your mindset? Where are you predominantly? Are you more of a growth mindset or more of a fixed mindset? Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, and, and so many people in, in, in Jim, I'm not too far behind you in age, but, but so many people as they get, you know, established in their career and they get closer to, you know, maybe that, that retirement so they can go into and, and do some other things, they, they, they become stagnant. And they don't look for ways to improve themselves. They don't look for their for ways to grow. And so I really encourage people, you know, of all ages, hey, you know, if you've got opportunities, go to that conference, get another degree. I mean, continue your education, keep learning because it keeps your mind active. And, you know, that way, you know, you fight off, you fight off any kind of dementia or Alzheimer's or whatever. No, I totally, you know, that, totally agree. Yeah. yeah. And the thing that's amazing now, Kevin, I mean, not only there's so many online platforms and schools mm-hmm. and degrees, but you can go to Coursera and sign up for just about anything imaginable yeah. under the sun. And I, I told somebody a couple of weeks ago, one of my biggest frustrations is there just isn't enough time. I'd love to learn a million different things that I just right. have to pick and choose. So it's important. Um, and, and, uh, you know, gosh, look at how our lives 
your and mine and how we manage has changed just in the last three years. And it's, uh, it's, it's amazing. And we have to be agile. We have to be open-minded. We have to be flexible and we have to be in tune with, you know, how much our world has changed in the last couple of years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, okay. We're, we're about to step on some toes here on this one. I think, you know, which chapter I'm going to hypocritical leadership. Yeah. Yeah. I think one of the things, Kevin, that, that we don't do a good job of is is being really um, intentional and pragmatic in our communication. And, um, you know, one of the stories I've told many times is I remember an executive standing up in front of a very large organization saying, if you want to get promoted, this is what you have to do. You have to go from this job to this job to this job to this job. And that's what you have to do. And then a month later, uh, an opening came open and somebody didn't go on that path and they promoted them outside of that path. And everybody was just like, just a month ago, they stood up and said, this is what you have to do. But now they're promoting this person who hasn't done that. And we don't take into consideration when we're being very binary, right? Um, Look, if this is the career path we generally intend people to do is one thing. This is what you must do is another thing. And then if you change that, right? Look, we've all, mm-hmm. you, you've been around long enough to know the one thing you learn working in corporations is there are rules and regulations, but there's exceptions everywhere. Right? Absolutely. Not ethical. Absolutely. I mean, ethical, right? Not unethical, yeah. but, but, the, the the role of a senior leader is figure out how to arbitrate the exceptions, right? So, oh, that's right. So yeah. just communicate that and don't say this is the way it's going to be. Say this is the intention. This is what we hope. This is our aspiration. But mm-hmm. as a big company, we reserve the right, you know, to modify that from time to time. That's right. I mean, trapped. Yeah, I'm one of those people that that I my career started on the business development marketing yep. side, and you know through being in the right place at the right time, I got some operational experience, and then was promoted up. And my first CEO job, you know, I came from a director of marketing position to a hospital CEO job, and that was unheard of in our company. But but you know somebody. And, and it was somebody seeing some potential, taking a chance on me, but also being willing to be flexible enough to provide that opportunity. And I think, you know, I think our people will respect that if, as, as you said, you know, this is our intention, but we reserve the right to make decisions that make sense, you know, at the time, as long as it's following within our, you know, our ethical framework, the, the values of the organization Hey, you know, I'm trying to do what's best for the organization and maybe it's not it's not your time right now. Right, 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 right. So, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's great. That's great and and you know, it always used to uh, make me chuckle when I talked to recruiters years ago, you know, when I was earlier in my career and they'd say, "Have you ever been a CEO?" Um I don't know any CEO who started off as CEO other than maybe somebody like, you know, Bill Gates or Bezos or Jobs who started their own business, right? Nobody's born CEO, right? Yeah. So, uh, yeah, no, I haven't been CEO, but I think. No kidding. Yeah. 
but I like to. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> I think I'd be really good yeah. at it. Okay, here here's another one that unfortunately, you know, you and I both, you know, in our careers, I know we've been faced with this that management by negativity. Yeah. yeah. You know, somebody that comes in and is just, you know, the doom and gloom person, or the I'm gonna I'm gonna pound you over the head uh, with all the bad stuff and think that that's going to make you do, you know make a positive impact. So let's talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I, 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 I tell a lot of my young coaching clients, look, you and I, you and I've seen so much change in this regard for the positive in our, in our career early on, you know, we were, we were servants. We, we were told what to do, when to do it, how high to jump. And we did that. And that's where a lot of people ran into trouble because they weren't strong enough, uh, weren't knowledgeable enough, weren't empowered enough, weren't protected enough not to feel like they were compelled to do what the leader was saying, even though they knew at the bottom of their heart, it probably wasn't the right thing to do. But, sure. but look, Kevin, what was it? Five years ago, six years ago, um, Wells Fargo fired 5,500 people for setting up millions of phony accounts. Why? Yeah. Because pressure came from above. Uh, there was a metric to set up new accounts and um, they still did things they knew that wasn't right. So there's still a lot of intimidation. There's still a lot of abuse. There's still a lot of discrimination. There's still a lot of aggressiveness. And uh, I just know when I've been around organizations that have really strong HR, people management folks, that mm. they're much better at this than organizations that don't have strong HR, where they're subservient to the executive suite and um, they're not protecting the employees the way they should be protected today. Yeah, no, I, I, I strongly agree with you there. Okay, here's another chapter, and it's something that is near and dear to my heart, the servant leader. Yeah. I mean, this, you know, and, and, and believe me, it, it was an evolution in my career, sure. you know, because Mine early too. on, you know, early on, you know, hey, I'm, I, I'm, I'm running the show. I'm, you know, and I finally figured out I don't exist without the people who work with yeah. me. And so, you know, my, my folks here know, look, what can I do to help you make your jobs better? Right. Yeah. You know, what can I do to help you provide better patient care for our folks? Yeah. Empowering those folks, giving them the development tools they need, the resources they need. I, you know, Kevin, new managers are often very prescriptive because they want people to do the work the way they would do it. And right. what we all realize at different points in our careers if I give the people the freedom to do the work that they, the way they would do it, wow, aha, uh -huh, what a surprise. They're actually doing it a lot better than I would have told them to do it my way. Sure. Right. So um, we've come a long way in this regard. I really do believe that. And there is much better development of the talents and the human capital. And I believe there's much more friendly servant leadership and wider adoption of that mindset. Um, and I'm excited and, and pleased uh, to see that. Um, yeah. But it's taken a lot of time, right? And it's, um, oh. it's, it's, a, it's an evolution. And I think our aspiration was that it would be a revolution, but it's been more of an evolution, but that's not a bad thing either. 
No, not at all. And, you know, I, it took me a while to figure out that I don't know everything. And so once I figured that out and, and allowed other people to pour into, you know, what we were doing, uh, you're exactly right. The, the results were so much better. Yeah. Kevin, it, so. you know, <clears throat> when you and I were starting out in our career, if we broke a bone, we went to see an orthopedic surgeon. Now you go to the hand surgeon or the shoulder surgeon or the hip surgeon or the knee surgeon or the foot surgeon or the neck surgeon or the back yeah. surgeon, right? Everything's specialized. And the same thing is true in business and in management. So clearly the most important thing for you and me and others to know is what we don't know and where to find out the, the, uh, where to go to find the answer when we don't know. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. 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 Okay. Here's one that, that you know, kind of hits host, uh, close to home for all healthcare executives now, managing leadership transitions in the workplace. You know, the average hospital CEO's yeah. lifespan, unfortunately, you know, is depending upon who, who you listen to, you know, 14 months to, to 18 months. Uh, you know, uh, fortunately, uh, we haven't had that kind of change here, but I've been in organizations where, the, the leadership is turning over, you know, constantly. So, so how do you manage that kind of transition? Yeah, I, I, my observation, Kevin, uh, and it's not based on data or findings or mm -hmm. studies or statistics, but my observation, and as I've told you early on, I've worked with quite a few outplaced healthcare executives, hospital executives. Mm -hmm. I don't think in general, the average hospital now really hospital system is doing as good a job in development and succession planning as for example, a company like Johnson and Johnson or 3M sure. or Medtronic. So part of what we have to do, which is really driven by the board, right? Is looking at talent, talent development, talent growth and succession. And, you know, who will take, the place of these people if for some reason there is turnover. Okay. And that said, I used to tell the hospital CEOs at the University Hospital Consortium, these were people working in academic health centers, you know, having to face issues with faculty and tenure and directors of pharmacy that were tenured professors okay. of the School of Pharmacy as sure. one example. You all deserve Nobel Peace Prizes because it's <laughs> just that the, the I, I think it was Drucker or, that said, you know, there's not a more complex organization than a hospital organization because yeah. of all the challenges, right? You've got staff mm -hmm. people, you've got non-staff people, you've got customers, you've got insurers, you've got the state, you've got the federal mm -hmm. government, you've got non-payers, you've got whatever you've got. Everything. And it, right. it is uh, a real challenging environment. And um, mm -hmm. helping people confront the myriad challenges in those positions is just uh, super critical. And it's extraordinary. Yeah. Well, and that's what makes this fun. Yeah. You know, for me, yeah. I mean, because. Agreed. You know, you know we, we talk to a lot of a lot of uh, students uh, here. Yep. Uh, high school, college, whatever. And, and, you know, the question they always ask, what's your typical day yeah. look like? I'm like. If I ever have a typical day, I'll let you know, yep. But, yep. but it's never happened. Yep. And that's, you know, that's what keeps me coming yep. back every day because I truly don't know what's going to happen. Yep. 
Yeah, and, and, and that's what makes it fun. Yeah, that, one of the best things that, that um, I had in my brief experience at Auctioner working for David uh, Pitts and then David Page when Dave uh, Pitts left to set up his consulting business was, um, you know, as someone on the hospital administration staff, I had to take call. And the mm-hmm. stuff that came <laughs> in, you know, was unbelievable just unreal nothing at my two-lane program and it's not it's not anything negative about two-lane but nothing in my mha program prepared me for the stuff that was coming in you know uh, when there were urgent needs in the system yeah absolutely okay last one and you know we still have to talk about managing post-pandemic i mean We've already talked about the change that has happened over the last three years, but let's tie it up around that. I think, Kevin, um, this is absolutely, without a doubt, in my 45 years in business, the most difficult and challenging time. Mm -hmm. And uh, part of it is we're still trying to sort things out, right? And it's going to take a while to sort things out. And Mm -hmm. there are lots of people that, um, don't want to go back to the office, work in an office, don't have yeah. to go in an office. But then you look at the report that just came out saying that their loneliness levels uh, and isolation is at mm-hmm. historic levels in the United States. So there's such a balance between what you might want to do from a work environment versus what you might need from an interaction environment. And um, we're just really starting to sort that out. That said, again, I really believe the pressure on people like you and your peers is just unprecedented. And it takes agility, it takes open-mindedness, and it takes you know, really listening to the customer, right? What's going on? What is the staff telling you? What are the staff's people telling you? What are the folks in the field on the street telling you? And um, I think being overly prescriptive and overly binary right now could be really detrimental. Totally agree. Because, you know, you look at, as you said, People want to work remotely, and yet, you know, mental health experts state otherwise. Um, and then you factor in the the changes in. I hate to I don't I hate to use the term work ethic, but just the the uh, ju- just the way that they approach work. You know, generationally, the Gen Zers versus Millennials versus you know baby boomers and everybody else. It's just different. And so, you know, you, we talk about how there's no there's no cookie cutter approach to, to management or leading people. You truly have to lead people individually. And and that is something that, I, that I've seen really change throughout my career because early on, you treated everybody the same. Some people treated everybody badly. But now you really, you know, you've got to get to know your people You've got to know what individually makes them tick. And then you've got to make sure that, you know, you challenge them in a way that is effective for them. Well, and and, and um, time management, um, mm-hmm. workflow management, 
you know, it's one thing uh, I, I talked to a, a gentleman who's got a very successful business and he's got, you know, 200 people that do billing for his business. So Jim, I don't care during a 24 hour period when these people do their eight hours of billing, I could care yeah. less as yeah. long as they're logged on and submitting their stuff. It doesn't matter. But mm -hmm. you know what, if you're in an administrative position and everybody else is working from seven to seven, if you want to work from, you know, noon to midnight, that may not be so functional, even though you're putting in the time right. and putting in the hours because people who you need to interact with aren't working during those hours and you yeah, need to understand uh, that, that. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's right. I mean, you know, was, there were a lot of our peers that, you know, during early, the early stages of COVID, you know, they were working remotely, yep. but I looked at it from the standpoint, my people are here. I mean, I, I, I have direct caregivers reporting up to yep. me. I need to be here to be able to support them. Absolutely. Yeah, you know, absolutely. But going back to what you just said, and, and I've got two great examples. Both of my daughters have hybrid working yep. environment. Yep. And, they, you know, and, and they've been told that, you know, I don't care when you work. Yep. I don't care, yep. you know, how that works out as long as you get your yep. work done. Yep. Which, you know, I, I got to say at the beginning of the pandemic, when we started sending people home, you're like, we're like, you know, is anything going to get done? We're worried about productivity, yep. but it was just the opposite. Yep. You know, I found people who were working remotely, you know, I'm getting emails from them at eight, yep. nine, 10 o'clock yep. at night to the point where I had to tell them, yep. you need to close yep. your laptop. Yep. yep. Good for you. And, yep. and have a work-life balance. Yeah, you have to. And, and that's, that's, the big challenge, right? And, and I talked to a number of my coaching clients, you've got to get control of your calendar. You can't be back to back to back to back to back to back yeah. from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. You got to get up. You got to walk around. You got to stretch. You got to have a break. You got to meditate for five minutes, whatever it sure. is. And it's great that you're doing that. And and because people, I think, default to the comfort, right? That, well, okay. I don't know what to do, so I'll just get on email and start doing it. And the other challenge, Kevin, as you know, and I've talked to a lot of leaders about this, is how you communicate and when you communicate sets <laughs> communication expectations for your staff. If Kevin's sending me messages at 10 o'clock at night, I'm going to assume he wants me to answer him at 10 o'clock at night, right? You, you have just nailed me, Jim. Uh, I mean, uh, you're, you you got me right here. You know, I was here, oh, I think I was here about eight months, and, and my wife took and I took a vacation. I was gone for a week. I'm emailing the whole time, and I had a wonderful director at the time who's since retired after 45 years with us. She calls me out. She said, look, Kevin. She goes, you're on vacation. I said, well, you know, on vacation, you do what you love, and I love what I do. She goes, but exactly what you said. If you send us an email while you're on vacation, that sets the expectation for us when we're on vacation that, oh, we need to be. I said, you know what? You're right. I said, I need to model the behavior that I want you guys to have. Absolutely. But but I'm also one of those guys that's really bad. I roll over in the middle of the night, <laughs> might be two in the morning. I have an idea. Oh, I need to text somebody. Yeah, yeah. And I've caught myself a few yeah. times sending texts at two and three in the morning. Like, I'm so sorry. But if I didn't do it, I'd forget about yeah. it. Yeah, I, I remember reading an article about a, uh, I don't know, about a year, year and a half ago in the journal 
and they were talking about this issue and there was a very prominent CEO, I forget who it was. And he said, when he goes on vacation, his wife locks his phone up in the hotel safe. And yes. she only unlocks it for like two hours a day. <laughs> Other yes. than that, it gets locked up and he doesn't know the code. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's great. I need, I need to tell my wife. I that. love that. Needs- I love that. Yeah. That's a great. Yeah. Hey, Jim, this Kevin, has thank been you. Yeah. so much fun. Me, I've thoroughly enjoyed it. It's been great. Wow, this has been fun. Yeah. Hey, any final words? Uh, no, just just keep on doing what you're doing. You know, the thing that uh, makes um, our world so special, um, and I never get the phrase that Stan Hupfeld said correctly, but it's all... Another name I know. It, well. <laughs> it, it, it's all about what we do that makes why we do what we do so important. And I, yeah. I tell everybody that regardless of what industry they're in, I was coaching a guy yeah. from State Farm and I said... Do you step back? I, I know you look at how many automotive policies you've sold or how many life insurance policies you've sold, but do you stop at the end of the day and say how much we're helping people and changing lives that are accessing the coverage that their insurance provides? That's what's got to get you out of bed in the morning, helping people stay protected, helping them replace their car, their home, their lost goods, their lost life, whatever it is. And always, always, always focus on what it is we're doing and why we're doing it. And I think it just is so powerful. Boy, that that's a great way to end this. Everybody, Jim Wetrich, the CEO of the Wetrich Group of Companies, the author of Stifled, where good leaders go wrong. Jim, I've had more fun than I can Me imagine too. with you today. Would love to have you on again. Love to. And it, it, we're going to do this good. again real soon. Yeah, great, so. great. Thank you so much, Kevin. You bet. Audience, friends, it's another an end of another fantastic episode, I will say, of I Don't Care with me, Kevin Stevenson. Look forward to seeing you next time. Take care.